You're listening to a message from Southview Church, located right outside of Nashville and Spring Hill, Tennessee. Now here's our featured sermon of the week. Today, we're going to continue learning about Jesus. And my hope is that as we get through the book of John, that you will have seen a well-represented understanding of who Jesus is. Because I do believe that Jesus, as he begins to reveal himself to you in his entirety, he will transform your life. There's nothing that I can do up here today. There's no amount of communication or study that I can do to change you. It's actually completely daunting for me to have a word for this group of people here. All the backgrounds, ages, some of you have been in ministry, some of you just brand new to the faith. How in the world can someone like me convey a message that would minister to each one of you other than the Holy Spirit? That's it. And so today as we get in the Bible and we get into John, we're going to be launching off of John 5. We're thankful for that. We're also thankful for last week. Pastor Josh, thank you for the message. Stay thirsty, my friends. Boy, is that not a challenge today? to stay thirsty for his presence. Many of us, we're like the woman at the well where we just feel inadequate coming at a random time to avoid the shame and the, the shunning of those people around us. But isn't it amazing? Jesus shows up when no one else would show up. He was there right at the, at the, at the well to greet her and to transform her life. And so today, as we get into John 5, before we do, it's very imperative that we make sure we take a pulse of our church to find out who is rooting for these two ridiculous teams in the Super Bowl. How many don't care? Raise your hand if you don't care. Okay, that's it. That's all we need to know. All right. Sandy, I'm still bitter. Sandy, Sandy just sits there all day with that shirt on just to remind me of my loss last year to the Chiefs. Lord, we just thank you. Anyway, okay, John 5. Oh, who wants the 49ers to win? Raise your hand. Okay. Who wants the Chiefs to win? Okay. <laughs> okay. There, we did it. We did it. Oh, okay. Well, let's just move into the word because I'm bitter right now. I'm getting bitter. John 5. Okay. John 5. I want to break it down today. John 5, the presence of Jesus. John 5. We're going to break it down into two sections. The first section is verses 1 through 18, which is Jesus healing at the pool of Bethesda. We will get to that, but we're going to start at verse 19. We're going to read through it. Now, before I have you stand, I want you to know that we're a church that believes there's authority in the reading of the word. So if this feels long, I'm not sorry. We, we, we've lost the power of reading the word out loud. And we've now relegated it to one or two scriptures because we don't want to bore you. But I'm here to tell you that what I'm getting ready to read could do more for you than anything else I can give in a four or five point sermon. So if you would stand to your feet today, we're going to read a large chunk of the word today. Is that okay? Okay, just wanted to make sure because the answer is yes, that's a rhetorical question. Okay, John 5 verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. Powerful statement. It's also an agitating statement to the people of the time. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
Now, as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to those he wills. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Thank you, Jesus but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgments are just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. You search scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. I'm going to say that again. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another came and comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when, they, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to my Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the reading of the word that brings forth life. We thank you that as we read the word, we are proclaiming Jesus, the living word. We thank you today that in this place, Holy Spirit and angels, you are welcome to move among this place. I silence distractions. I silence condemnation. I silence anything that would con be contrary to the word of God today, transforming us and changing us to be different than when we came in here. And Jesus, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise in your holy name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. John 5, 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The title of my message is, Jesus Works in mysterious ways. 
Jesus works in mysterious. Have you ever the old saying, God works in mysterious ways? God works in mysterious ways. Can anybody testify that Jesus works in mysterious ways? Anybody have seen Jesus do things in your life that there's no other person, no other way that that could happen except from Jesus? I'm here to tell you that Jesus works in mysterious ways, and I'm excited about it. I'm glad that he does not conform to my ways. It's taken me a while to get to that statement, but I finally got to it. His ways are higher. His ways are better. My ways are finite. My ways are immediate right now. His ways are for eternity. And someone needs to hear that today, that you need to submit your ways to the king. Jesus works in mysterious ways. Have you ever noticed that Jesus does strange things? By strange, I mean things that we wouldn't do, but they're always right. Jesus does the right thing. In fact, reading through John, we're going to have a well-balanced picture of Jesus operating in his glory and his willingness to come on earth and to do things that were belittling him as a God. To put on a flesh suit. To relegate himself to air and gravity and food and sleep. These are things that a God does not have to do, but he humbled himself so that we would understand the beauty and majesty of the love of a father through his son. John 5, 39, we read this. It says, Jesus says, you search scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let me just say this today. Jesus was stirring up something back then and he's still trying to stir up something today. And so I want you to know that we're gonna step on a few toes here today because I believe that Jesus wants people to be free. He does not want us to be bound by a religious thing. So let's talk about the story that precedes his dissertation. Jesus begins to speak about who he is because there's an encounter that takes place before this that speaks of his very nature. And if we go to verse 1 of chapter 5, we'll read it today. You can stay seated. I'm going to read it to you. The story of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and he knew, and Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the, to the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus said, well, then get up, take up your bed and walk. So simple for Jesus. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to, to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, he said, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not who it was for Jesus withdrew as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. How dare him? 
But Jesus answered him and said, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling, he even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus works in mysterious ways. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. I have some pictures here. Leah and I were at the Pool of Bethesda here. It was outside of a church, St. Saint, Saint Anne's Church, outside of Jerusalem in that area. And there's me and my lovely wife having revelation. Do you remember that time? Do you remember that? You were pregnant with a kid. How many, which kid was that? Do you remember? No. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of kids. It was a kid. He's alive. She's alive. Someone's alive. Anyway, full of, this is the area that they excavated, and this was the area of the Pool of Bethesda. Now, I want you to know that this was a time during the feast. Jesus came an intentional time. Jesus is never late. He's never early. He's always on time. He came at a time when there would have been upwards of 3,000 sick people around this pool. People believe that they would have flocked there, not only because they were coming for the feast, but also because they were believing that they could be healed. The word Bethesda means house of mercy. Now, it's interesting because if you were around that pool with that many sick people, it would have been anything but a house of mercy. It probably would have had a stench to it, a lot of sick people, a lot of people dealing with issues, maybe skin issues. Maybe Many of them couldn't walk. Some of them couldn't see. It was depressing. It was anxious. People were sitting there waiting for something to happen with the water so that they could get into it with a hope that the first person to get into it could get healed. Can imagine the sense of tension, the sense of desperation. Jesus shows up. Now, this was outside the sheep gate, which meant that this is the gate that they would have brought the sheep in, and this pool, this pool of Bethesda, anywhere between two to three feet deep, would have been where they would have put the sheep in to cleanse them before the sacrifice. Interesting that Jesus picks these places to show up. Now, it's also interesting that this man was there for 38 years. Some of you aren't even 38 years old. Some of you are way past 38 years old. 38 years old, 38 years at this place waiting in hopes that he could be healed. Some guy, Jesus, shows up and asks this crazy question. Do you want to be healed? I mean, come on now. What other question? I mean, what do you think? I'm sitting here. Of course I want to be healed. But Jesus works in mysterious ways. And how many know Jesus asks mysterious questions? Because you're always looking to get to the heart of the matter. Did you know that? Jesus wants to get to your heart. And sometimes he allows things to happen around you to reveal your heart. He will offend your mind to reveal your heart. Jesus, in this particular situation, and even his dissertation that he speaks after, reveals that he is, in fact, a human God. Now, this is big time. What I read to you, we all rejoice in it. But you can imagine the religious leaders at the time hearing this come from his mouth. It was sacrilegious. It was blasphemous. How dare you say this thing? And not only that, but he even added insult to injury. He stated five ways how he was equal with God. Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth, that you would come in here and say this? He says this, I'm equal with God because I, how I work. I work like Jesus. Jesus works like his father. Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. 
He says he's equal with God in what he does. Verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He's equal with God in who he raises. Guess what? In verse 21, he says he's going to raise people from the dead. That's a precursor to things to come because God, his father, raises people from the dead. He's equal with God, listen to this, on how he judges Verse 22 says, the father judges no one, but has given all authority, all judgment to his son. And he's equal with God in how he receives honor. Verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who has sent him. This is Jesus now beginning to state who he is. And people either believe he is the Messiah or he's a complete lunatic. Imagine, the lines are being divided. There is no in-between. You either serve and follow this man or you persecute and want him crucified. Jesus, in the process of being mysterious in what he does, he also makes no bones about it. He's not going to heal the people the same way twice. What he's doing now is he's beginning to outline his ministry. That his ministry is not on procedures, but it's on a person. Because how many know we can make it a process more than we can make it about the person? Out of the, out of the miracles that he did, the healings, depending on how you categorize them, there's anywhere between 24 to 37 miracles or healings recorded in the Bible. Sometimes the healings are public. Sometimes they're private. Sometimes he speaks a word at a distance. Other times he reaches out to touch. Sometimes he does the touching. Sometimes people touch him. Sometimes it comes with a teaching. Other times with a warning. Sometimes he's asked for healing. Others he heals without being asked. He is not setting a mode of operation because how many know that if we saw something similar every time he did it, we'd do it too. And we'd start a ministry about it. And we'd make money off the internet with it. Let me just give you some examples. If God did the same healing, if Jesus did the same healings, we would have mud stations up front every time somebody wanted to get healed. Slap it on people's eyes. Instead of calling up the prayer ministry team, we'd call up spitters. Come on up here. You want to get healed? Jesus did that. If you wanted to get healed, guess what we'd do? We'd start instituting holes in the roof. Why? So you can drop the people that need to be healed in the middle of my sermon. Just drop them in. Why? Because that's what Jesus did as well. We would formulate this. We would do things, and we'd even do that with the signs and wonders. You know, if we were having a gathering as a church, instead of worrying about how many people are coming and how much food we need, just make sure a little boy came with his lunchbox. That's all we need. Some of you aren't following me. That's a story as well. Jesus multiplied a... Ooh, okay. So some of us... <laughs> when you had a wedding, you'd not only want me to officiate it, but also be on hand in case the liquor went low. We're laughing, but you know we do this. Why? Because we want things to be easy. If I can do this plus this and get this, I don't need Jesus. I don't have to worry about his timing. I don't have to worry about all the things he wants me to do. I just want what I want from Jesus. I don't want to be obedient. And obedience requires us trusting something mysterious like Jesus when he operates in different ways than we would operate on our own. Jesus, the one thing I know about his miracles, they all required one thing, faith. Either faith of Jesus every time or faith of the people or even faith of someone else in steadfast for that person. Faith is important in the ministry of Jesus. 
Jesus always asked people to do difficult things. Did you know that? I don't know if when you signed up for Christianity, I don't know if you know that, but there's going to be difficult things that you're going to have to do. Jesus is always going to have difficult things like get up and walk when you can't walk. That's a difficult thing. I don't know if you noticed that. Get up and walk when you can't walk. Jesus, why would you ask that man to get up and walk? Because Jesus goes beyond our natural thinking. He wants you to think supernaturally. He doesn't want you to think through your natural. Let me give you some depth into what was taking place because this man was at a pool for 38 years. I don't know if you noticed this. Some of you may because you're very astute, but some of you may have noticed, and maybe you didn't, that there's no verse four in your Bible in chapter five. Did you notice that? How many noticed that? Raise your hand, be honest. Okay, some of you, the rest of you, Revelation, here you go. There's no chapter, there's no verse four in your chapter five. Why? Well, because in the original manuscripts, it's not there. In the New King James or the King James Version, for those of you that still have that, uh, it, it has verse 4. I'm going to read it to you. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Why was it taken out? Because many people believe, and as historians do, that that wasn't in the original manuscript because that was a myth. There was an urban legend. There was a, a theory that there was an angel stirring up the water. And in fact, it, the pools were over a natural spring. So these people were believing for everything. If I could just, the water's bubbling. And you can imagine a free-for-all of people that could barely get there. This man would have to crawl on his hands to get to the pool over a water spring when really Jesus shows up and says, do you want to be healed? And I wondered to myself, I don't know if you wondered this, but I wondered why, did he, why this man? Why of all the people? Why does Jesus heal this person when I'm up here waiting for a healing? Have you ever thought that? Why is that person's marriage gets restored and, and mine doesn't yet? Why is that person's prodigal son or daughter come home and my, I'm still believing? All I know is there's something Jesus is doing behind the scenes that we never know in the moment, but we will see later on and realize that he was always at work even when we saw other people get the miracle that we were praying for. Jesus is always doing things and he's always asking his people to trust him. Jesus doesn't want us reliance on a pool. He wants us reliance on a person. And so he's getting us to the core. Now, let me say this. There's something interesting in this chapter that stands out like a sore thumb. Jesus is always challenging this religious spirit. Jesus speaks a whole dissertation about who he is, knowing full well that there were a bunch of religious leaders watching and hearing, and he spoke directly to them to agitate them. Jesus loved agitating the religious spirit. Let me speak to you a little bit about this, because I believe that the religious spirit is the biggest enemy of the church today. Now, I'm about ready to go in. All that other stuff was, was just the, 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 the trailer. This is the real movie right now. We're going in right now. Get ready. I'm telling you today that the biggest enemy of the church is the religious spirit, and Jesus spends a majority of his ministry agitating the religious spirit. 
You're going to see that over the next few chapters. Why? Because it's one of the things that tries to stop the church's power. I want you to know it's not the spirit of Islam. It's not the Hindu ministry. It's not the Hindu religion. It's not other religions. They don't compare. They're all dead religions. There is no power behind them. Jesus defeated the grave. He defeated the sickness. He defeated the enemy. But the religious spirit likes to rear its ugly head and come into services and manipulate Christians into believing something. You don't believe me? I'm telling you, Matthew 24, Jesus says this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray even the elect. The religious spirit comes in to deceive you and me from the true power, which is Jesus Christ. John Bevere says this, a religious spirit is one who uses God's word to execute his own will. Now, the reason why I see Jesus doing this is because he does something in the story that really doesn't bear any witness to the man's healing other than Jesus is just trying to rile up the religious people. He says this, listen to me. He says, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Now, what was the thing that the religious leaders got all upset was that the man was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. You don't think you would rejoice that a man that couldn't walk for 38 years is walking around? No, the religious spirit just sees something's going on and you're not following the rules. Jesus was not going to follow the rules. He made the rules. He is the rule. He is the living, breathing word. And when they saw this man carrying his bed, they were more preoccupied with him carrying it than him being able to walk. And that's what the religious spirit does. It looks for things to pick apart. It looks to divert you from the power and the source of the supernatural. And I'm telling you today, it is demonic. It is demonic. This is the thing that causes people to leave the church. You've heard it before, yo. I'm done with religion. You're, you're done with the religious spirit. Not the church, the religious spirit. And I'm here to tell you because many of you in this room, you've been hurt by church and you think the enemy that's hurt you is a pastor or another Christian. It's a spirit and it's called the religious spirit. And I'm here to expose it today because I want this place to be a place that operates in the Holy Spirit, not the religious spirit. I got no time in my life to coddle a religious spirit just like Jesus. Every time he preached the gospel, he went right after the religious people. You would think he would befriend the religious people, but he knew the religious people were not for him. And if they're not for him, they're against him. So, let me just say this. The religious spirit is a spirit that enslaves you to a false salvation. It enslaves you to a false salvation that your works save you. That how you respond saves you. Now, I'll even take it a step further. There are three of these items around the world. I know one of them is at the Museum of the Bible. They believe there's only three of them, and it's called the Slave Bible. Some of you have heard about this. It was a Bible that was put together in the days of slavery that was intentionally designed to enslave the African Americans. In fact, about 90% of the Old Testament is missing from the Slave Bible. And 50% of the New Testament is missing. I'll put it another way. There are 1,189 chapters in a standard Protestant Bible. In the slave Bible, there's only 232 chapters. 
you can imagine how much they took out of it. And they took out any scriptures that would prompt rebellion or any scriptures that talked about freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a true act of a religious spirit. They took out a scripture like this, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. They took the spirit of religion, takes that out of a Bible so that it can manipulate and control people. If you don't think that same spirit is moving today, you are misguided and you are naive. That same spirit is trying to enslave the church today. But ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. God always raises up a standard against the religious spirit. And in those days, there was a man by the name of Frederick Douglass. Put a picture up there if you would. Frederick Douglass, who was a man that had an encounter with Jesus. He was a slave that had an encounter that began to learn to read and write and eventually moved to Washington, D.C. to help transform the laws that governed the slaves. He brought freedom. Look what he says this. He says this. What I have said respecting and against religion, I meant strictly to apply to slave-holding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to Christian proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all the misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. He said that this religion that was perpetuated by a religious spirit was used to enslave, but Jesus, he came to set the captives free. I'm telling you, the Lord wants to raise up more Frederick Douglasses in our day and age that will speak the truth and set the captives free. This religious spirit tries to tell Jesus how to operate and what he can do and how he can do it. And it is a religion straight from hell. Mark 7, Jesus says this. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. Thus, listen to this, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Jesus is speaking to the church, ladies and gentlemen. He's saying, there's many of you in the church today that you hold on to your traditions more than you hold on to me. And in that action, you're actually voiding the word of God. If you want to know why the power of God's not moving in some churches, it's because they're allowing the spirit of religion to have his way. And I refuse to see that happen in this church or in this region. As long as there's breath in my lungs, I want to have a Frederick Douglass moment where my eyes are awakened to the fact that no one should be in bondage to a religious spirit. So let me give you some characteristics of the religious spirit. You ready for this? Number one, it works without life and power. I don't have them up here, but you can just listen to this. 
It works without life and power. You know that there's a religious spirit in work because it completely ignores the fruit of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit. Let me say this to and I'm saying this bold and I'm proclaiming it loudly. If you are ever in a church or in a community that denies the Holy Spirit, it is a religious spirit not full of the Holy Spirit. And I need you to run as quick as possible away from that institution because that is an institution used to control and manipulate people. When the Holy Spirit shows up, the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated. It cannot be controlled. I can't take credit for it. All I can say is he's moving and I'm I'm going to let him have his way. The, whole, the, the spirit of religion works without relationship or presence. There's no presence when the Holy Spirit is moving. It's not the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's something else. You feel the condemnation instead of the freedom. You feel the, the strongholds, the chains, instead of being loosed. The f- spirit of religion it, it, it ignores relationships because it's all about me. It's not about you. It's not about how you feel. It's about how I feel. That's the spirit of religion. It will not come under authority. The spirit of religion is always the teacher. It's never the student. Come on now. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's those people that always have a word to say but never receive a word. That's a spirit of religion. It's people that think they know more than anyone else. They have more revelation than anyone else. You need to hear what I have to say. You need to come listen to what God showed me. Well, guess what? The same God that speaks to you is the same God that speaks to all of us. He's no respecter of persons. The same Holy Spirit in you is in me. He can give you revelation just like he gave to me. And he will not come under authority. Anything that they can't control, they find fault with. Come on, think about that right now. Anything that they can't control, there's a fault behind it. And listen, this stuff creeps in all the time. You see something happening, you start to make excuses of why it's moving. Well, you know, they don't really, well, and that's a spirit of religion. God uses people, the most unlikeliest of people, to perform his task and to minister the gospel. The spirit of religion will not submit to Jesus' plan. It uses scripture for its own purposes. And it will use scripture to uh, manipulate relationships. Listen, there's some people where they've been manipulated by their spouse with with words that Jesus did not mean that way. Listen, I'm telling you right now, you are not to use scripture to manipulate loved ones. That's not what it's for. That's a spirit of religion. And it's creeping into marriages and relationships. The spirit of religion will create a culture of pride. You could tell it's communicating because it uses words like I, me, look at me, spend time dealing with me. They're always the center of attention. They always want to be celebrated. That's a spirit of religion. And Jesus is completely opposite. He says, look to the least of these. It's not about, listen, scripture, we read it two weeks ago. Your will be done. Your will be done. You must increase. I must decrease. The spirit of religion says, I must increase, you must decrease. It's a completely different anti-Christ spirit. The spirit of religion, guess what? It loves Middle Tennessee. How do I know that? Because we have so many people that say they know Jesus, but they don't act like him. They don't talk like him. They don't know Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this, this message, if anything, you, there's principalities. We don't have time to get into all of this, but there's principalities and powers assigned over different regions. And we know for certain that Middle Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible belt, the principality is the spirit of religion. I mean, think about this. It, we, we, we go, what church do you go to? 
Everybody goes to church. If everybody went to church and everybody knew the Holy Spirit and everybody knew the word of God, do you know how different this region would look? There would be no poverty. There would be no brokenness. There would be no divorce. There would be complete love and freedom. So how do I know that God needs to move? Is because I still see these sinful habits and they're creeping in the church because the religious spirit says, come on, it's okay to be like this. See, you need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and the word of God renews us. And so when the spirit of religion gets offended by the word of God, that's why I wanted to read the word of God out loud to you because I want you to know that we prefer the word of God over any other thing. God is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love that Jesus intentionally riled up the spirit. He was giving us a model. He was showing us that as the body of Christ, we cannot coddle the spirit of religion. We cannot allow it to operate in our lives. And we cannot allow it to move in Middle Tennessee. Listen, I'm telling you, there are some churches here that need to have a revolution, a revival, and a encounter with Jesus so that he can revive them back to where they need to be. There's some pastors that are trying to manipulate and control people. And Jesus needs to either take them out of the pulpit or they need to get on their face and repent because we are living in a time where we need the whole truth. We need a move of God. We need Holy Spirit to show up. We don't need religion. We need a Holy Spirit encounter. And I think I'm preaching to the right group of people because I think every one of you want God more than anything else. You want Jesus more than anything else. Listen, I want you to know there's nothing I can present to you today that transforms you other than Jesus. All I want to be is an oracle that God can speak through. It's impossible for me to be able to communicate a word to the varying degrees of people in this room. The only way it happens is the Holy Spirit. But Jesus works in mysterious ways. And he does things because he wants us to know he's more concerned, listen to me, with your heart than your healing. Jesus, listen to me, he will let you sit at the pool for 38 years because he's more concerned with your heart than your instant gratification. Jesus walked into the pool of Bethesda. Listen to me, this man was there for 38 years. Everything Jesus does is intentional. He walked in there and found this one man out of thousands and speaks directly to him. And he says, pick up your mat and walk. Get up, get up. And he picks up his mat and instead of people celebrating, they're more concerned with what he was doing on the Sabbath than the fact that he was healed after 38 years. That's the spirit of religion. Jesus will not operate under your rules. And I believe that one of the greatest, again, the greatest enemies of the church is the spirit of religion. I, I've, I've, I've learned in my walk with Jesus that many times I ask him for things and he does it a different way. And I'm learning now to be okay with that. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we pray, God, you know, take care of my needs, right? We want God to take care of our needs because we need him to take care of our needs. But it's interesting, many times we think it's going to come in a promotion, that God will give us a new job, you know? But then sometimes he does radical things like a check in the mail. Sometimes all of a sudden something gets paid off and you didn't even know how it got paid off. Happened to us many times. Sometimes you'll go somewhere and somebody will pay for your, your groceries. 
or somebody pays for your coffee. These little things that you realize every day as you begin to get into that realm with the Lord, you realize he's moving in your life. Why? Because he wants you dependent on him, not on your paycheck or your job. And for some of you, this is a hard word because you're looking at what you can do to get through life when Jesus is like, if you will trust me, I will get you through it all. It may not look the way you want. It may not have been the way you planned. But how many know if all your needs are met according to his riches and glory, who cares? I'm telling you, I've said this many times. There's no way on paper that we can afford to sustain 10 kids. I don't know. Every month I look at it and go, another miracle, another mystery. God did it again. I don't know how he does it. But I've come to learn that mysterious Jesus can have his way with me because I'd rather just be in his zone than try to be around telling him what to do. And for some of us in this room, you're exhausted because you've tried so hard to tell Jesus how you want him to work. And I'm telling you, you'll never win that battle. So this message is to encourage you. Let go. Let go. Jesus, we want Jesus to formulate his patterns so we don't have to trust him. But Jesus is always about the heart over the healing. Now, let me say this. Jesus says something profound. He sees this man. Jesus didn't even want the credit. He healed the man. Scripture says because there was a crowd, he kind of ducked out. This man didn't even know who healed him. How many of us could say we would do the same thing? I don't know. I'd be like, look, I was the one that did it. I don't know if you, I mean, we could put it on Instagram. I healed this person. Look, Jesus was like, it's not my time. He heals him. He ducks out. He finds him later on in the temple, and he says this to him. He says, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Now, some people believe, because we know later on in John 9, we're going to get to that, that somebody said, how come this person is sick? You're going to do that, right, John 9? Yeah, you are. You're going to preach that. How come this man is sick? Did he sin? Jesus said it wasn't the sin. It wasn't his sin that caused him. But for this particular case, again, mysterious Jesus, there is no formula. Jesus comes to this man and says, stop sinning. Some people believe that whatever he did in his previous, before the 38 years, that he lived a sinful life, that maybe that's what got him to the place of where he was at in his condition. Jesus knew the heart of people. There is no form of, you cannot formulate ministry with Jesus. You can't look at one person and lay hands on and they get healed and think that same thing you did then is gonna work over here. Now you're becoming dependent on the process instead of the person. I want you to hear me today. I'm trying to break religious spirits in this place because for some of you, you're distracted right now because you know there's something that has to go in your heart and it's called control. We all want to control it. Jesus, please do this. I need it done by Friday. I got a lot of things to do this weekend. You got to change my husband's heart because he's getting on my nerves and I want to kill him and I don't want to go to jail. So please take care of him. And Jesus is like, hey, guess what? I'm going to work on your heart, not his heart. Well, Jesus, I'm perfect. There's no problem with me. No, Jesus is like, you don't see what I see. See, Jesus knows more than you. And if we can get this, a dependency, and a dependency on Jesus, we will never have to worry about the religious spirit. Because the religious spirit hates Jesus. It's an antichrist spirit. And listen, let me say this. Jesus wants you whole. He doesn't want you just healed. I've learned this in the healing ministry, that many times people come in, they got a bad back, they got a broken leg, whatever it is, and they end up getting their heart healed. And I'm like, what happened, Jesus? You just did the okie doke, man. You were like, look over here and over here. And I'm like, how did you do it? He goes, because I'm more concerned with their heart 
Because if I can heal their heart, I can heal their body. That's easy. And many times our physical healing is tied to our heart. Not every time, but many times it is. And what I want to see the church become is a healthy representation of Jesus. I'm so tired of people judging the church off the spirit of religion. The world is tired of the spirit of religion. Listen to me. Some of you have left church because of the spirit of religion. Some of you used to be in ministry. You're no longer. Why? Because of the spirit of religion. The church is God's institution. He died for the church. The spirit of religion is an antichrist spirit used to manipulate and turn people away from the very thing that will set them free. So there's two people in this room. Maybe you've been free. You're working on your freedom. Let's go. That's me. Maybe you're in this room today and maybe you feel the weightiness of this spirit on your life. How do we know? Because maybe you've been offended by religion. Maybe you're here because somebody invited you. You don't even like me. You're just like, why is that guy dressed like that? I don't even know what's going on. He's always yelling for 40 minutes. (laughs) Maybe you're living with a spirit of religion. Like maybe literally you are in bondage to a religious spirit. And this message was actually formulated and put together to set you free. How do you know? How do you know? Well, because healthy church offends you. You get around in the church and people are doing life together and they're laughing and they're full of joy. I'm telling you, if you don't have joy, that's a clear sign that there's a religious spirit in your life. Well, you know, Pastor Mark, I'm just serious. No, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a fruit of the spirit. I'm telling you, I wish I had time. I get around some pastors and I'm like, I would never want to go to your church, let alone be your friend. There's no joy. There's no life. That's a religious spirit. Newsflash, you can get it broken off of you. You can actually learn to smile again. You can actually have joy in your life. You want strength? Get some joy. You want joy? Get rid of the religious spirit. Healthy relationships feel strange to you. You get around healthy people. Their life is healthy. And you start nitpicking about why something's wrong with them. I don't trust them. Something's wrong with them. No, it's because you're not used to being around healthy relationships because the spirit of religion has manipulated you into controlling broken relationships. The spirit of religion causes the presence of God to scare you. You get in moments like this when when there's a holy reverence of the Holy Spirit and you just start fidgeting. You don't know what to do. I I, I gotta go to the bathroom four times. Nobody has to go to the bathroom that many times. But you just gotta, I gotta get out of here. I can't, why? Because the spirit of religion doesn't like the presence of God. Maybe you're that today. Guess what? Good news. It's gonna get broken off of you. Maybe you're in in this place where you know you need freedom, but it's too much work. Too much work. Too much work. That's a spirit of religion. He doesn't want you free. It's worth the work. It's worth, turn to somebody and say, it's worth the work. Spirit of religion loves to question the Holy Spirit. Oh man, the spirit of religion does not like the fact that we cannot control the Holy Spirit. He always does stuff that I don't want him to do. He makes me do things I wish I didn't do. He makes me look silly. That's the Holy Spirit. He's going to confound your mind because he wants your heart. And some of us, were trying to be prim and proper, but I'm guaranteeing you, when you get to heaven, you'll be on your face. So might as well practice it now. And the spirit of religion constantly tries to tell Jesus how to operate in your life. It's holding you back from true freedom and healing in your experience with Jesus. So today, we're going to renounce the spirit of religion. With every eye closed here today,
if this message hits you, it's not me. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. He wants you free. I'm inviting the Holy Spirit right now. And all you have to do is say, God, I, I just renounce this. I renounce this, this heaviness, the spirit of religion. I've been under it. I've been walking in it. I feel the weight of it. I, I'm judgmental. I'm miserable. Everything about the church bothers me. You need to get free today. Thank you so much for listening to this message. Southview Church is a non-denominational, multi-generational, multicultural community of believers passionately pursuing Jesus, family, freedom, and unity in the body of Christ. If you would like to connect with us, visit us at southview.cc and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.